two guests today for show number 20. Mike Wester is back. We talk about Hot and Spicy Fest coming to Beijing this weekend. I also ask him about COVID in Beijing and, and this really useful poll he's been running. It's excellent talking to Mike. I also love the fact that I've had the show long enough to have returning guests. Um, later, in part two, I talked to journalist Peter Catterall. He wrote a piece in Sup China about China's favorite sports. A couple of surprises there, at least to me, and I push back a little bit on his list. Gently push back. And one more thing, and this is super exciting. Um, I'd given myself six months to earn enough money from the Beijing sessions to, to cover my overhead. I don't have a ton of overhead. I, I bought some hardware, um, including a microphone. I pay for Zoom. Uh, there's my website. And there's just other fees that, you know, it, it adds up. But guess what? Uh, starting this week, you can hear segments of the Beijing Sessions on Radio Beijing International. They'll air excerpts from previous shows, which I'll package myself, and they'll rebroadcast them throughout the week. In Beijing, they air on 92.3 FM, but if you're overseas, uh, I think you'll be able to hear them too. Um, just check your listings. Uh, just maybe, maybe you have Radio Beijing International. I don't know. Nothing changes with the podcast. I'll produce it from home, and I'll still talk to the guests that I want to talk to. I'm really excited. Did I mention that yet? Um, their English-speaking audience is something like uh, like 200,000 listeners a month, which is pretty large. Um, in the meantime, keep rating the show wherever you listen. Um, it's possibly the easiest and best way to support the show. Speaking of which, shout out to CJ Holden for your five-star review. Okay, let's start with Mike Wester. Beijing's getting hot and spicy this weekend, and to talk about it is Mike Wester, the founder and CEO of True Run Media, which publishes The Beijinger, Jing Kids, and Jing Kids International. Um, I've interviewed 24 people for this podcast. Mike Wester, you are the first to come back. Uh, so uh, you're here to talk about Hot and Spicy Fest. What is Hot and Spicy Fest? Well, it's our annual celebration of all things spicy. Um, people love spicy food in this city. It seems to be a, not only a local f fascination, but also sort of a natural uh, national infatuation. Uh, people love spicy food, no matter where it's from in China. China's got a lot of different regions of China spicy foods. Uh, my, my wife's home province, Henan, there's, peppers are not native to that province. Chili peppers are not native to that province, but they've adopted it as their own. So if you go to Henan, they're going to be eating spicy food. And it's not a traditional uh, place you might think of as having spicy food, as opposed to, say, a Sichuan or a Hunan or these type of places. So we've got a, we got a whole bunch of people together, a whole bunch of vendors, food vendors and drink vendors and entertainment, uh, all in one place for a weekend of just uh, lots of spicy food. So who are the vendors that are going to be uh, part of this? Uh, part? We've got food from all over the world. We've got a lot of Chinese vendors, and we also got a lot of Western food vendors. So um, I don't have the I don't happen to have the list in front of me right now, but I suffice it to say you're going to find something for everybody. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you expect, sort of you know your Qmexes and your uh, your your Latin foods and some Chinese spicy foods. But you're also probably going to be surprised because a lot of the vendors will be doing something spicy uh, specifically for the festival. And they don't maybe they don't have that on their menu regularly. 
And to top it all off, I think you're having uh, some kind of competition as well. Yes, it's our annual chili pepper eating contest, which is actually the highlight of the day. Uh, it happens at 3 p.m. on each day. We have one contest on Saturday and one cast contest on Sunday. And uh, we've it, it's strange. This actually evolved from just a, an event 11 years ago. This whole festival, in fact, started at the Canada Day Festival in uh, 2000 and. 10, I guess it was. Um, and we were invited to participate in Canada Day. And they said, can you do some sort of activity? And we couldn't figure out what we should do. So we said, how about a chili pepper eating contest? Uh, and lo and behold, that became the hit of the festival. That festival, that Canada Day festival, um, the, the probably the number one attraction at that point was the spicy eating contest. And over the years, it's built into the point where we just decided, hey, look, let's make this into its own festival. So we started that a few years ago. I think this might be our th- fourth rendition or third or fourth rendition of the of the whole weekend long festival yeah it's just grown every year so people really love it are you taking part in the? no no i'm definitely not taking part i'm not taking part i it's a grueling competition and when we started it was kind of a race and then we realized you know just to eat as many as you can in a certain period of time and then we realized that was unpleasantly dangerous because people were uh people were getting sick and we didn't that wasn't that's not the point. We don't really want to make people suffer that much. We don't want them to have intestinal distress for days. <laughs> so, so what we do is we, we, we do it nice and slow. Each contestant starts out with a, a mild a form of peppers, a mild chili, and they get, I think, three of each. And they have a certain amount of time. I think it's maybe 30 seconds or something to eat the three chilies. Then if they make it past that round, we give them the next round, which is a spicier chili. I wish people good luck. <laughs> I want to do this. Um, how do people get tickets? Uh, you can go on our website on thebeijinger.com or you can follow our WeChat account and there's going to be a tab somewhere that says how to get tickets. You can also buy tickets at the door. Very cool. And did you have this last year as well? Yeah, we had this. Actually, we had it last fall. It hasn't really been a full year. Usually we do it in the spring, but last year because of COVID-19, we did it in the fall. Um, Mike, I cannot let you go without asking you about COVID stuff. Um Today marks 101 days uh, without a local virus transmission in Beijing. I don't know what the numbers are in the rest of China, but it's probably something similar. Mm. It's warm out. The air has been decent. And it just seems like we've turned another corner here. And you've been polling vaccination rates on your WeChat group, Safe and Sane. What can you tell us about the results? Well, it's pretty interesting because as 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 probably most listeners know, uh, the vaccine wasn't initially available to foreigners. And the Safe and Sane groups are primarily made up of foreign residents. And so there was a lot of talk in March about, oh, geez, are we ever going to get access to the, vi- the, 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 the vaccine? And what vaccine will become available when any of the imported vaccines come in? Uh, but lo and behold, uh, the... Uh, the vaccine, the local, the two locally manufactured vaccines that are referred to as Sinovac and Sinopharm were made available to foreigners at the end of March. So I just decided, let's find out what people, how people feel about it. Because initially there was a lot of sort of word on the street, like, oh, I'm nervous about this vaccine. I don't know. I'm waiting for the foreign one because I trust one from my home country more. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, I think in the first week, 20% of the population of these safe and sane groups, which is about, I don't know, a little over 5,000, had gotten the first shot. So I thought it got it into my head that I just want to track this over time to see how it goes. And here it is five weeks later. And now uh, 80% of the foreign population of these groups have now had at least one shot and 50% have had both, myself included. 
and and myself included as well. But it looks like we've plateaued a little bit. Yeah, if we if you look at the sort of curve of the of the of the chart of the past five weeks, it has sort of plateaued a little bit. But I did hear something interesting this morning that maybe uh, will cause it to spike up again, which is. WHO's approval of the final Sinopharm vaccine. Um, someone told me they were at a vaccination center the other day, and there was, uh, I think, yesterday, and a lot of lines, a lot more than they expected. So I guess there's renewed interest in that since WHO gave it the seal of approval, that those skeptics who were initially saying to themselves, on the fence, are now saying, all right, I'll go for it. That was such massive news. I think that it's going to have far ranging, ranging consequences. It just adds this like layer of legitimacy to the to the vaccine. I think that it, yeah. it maybe didn't have before. Yeah, interestingly, I mean, foreigners sometimes can be a little bit skeptical of domestic things, especially yeah. if they're you know, it, it's natural when you're when you're dealing with uh, something that's you know potentially life threatening in terms of COVID nineteen. People are freaked out about it. But interestingly enough. You know, uh, I have some friends in the U.S. ask me, hey, how do I get access to the Chinese vaccine, which is not available in the U.S. right now? And I was saying to them, why do you care? Because you have Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and all these kind of things. And they said, and I'm in totally novice or layman's terms here. They were saying that basically the Chinese vaccines use a very uh, traditional vaccination uh, vaccine development technology. It's not a lot of gene splicing and all sorts of weird stuff. It's just a deactivated virus, which is the way the polio vaccine was created and many other vaccines before it. So people are who are super paranoid about you know a vaccine maybe potentially having some sort of unintended consequences. A lot of them are saying I'd prefer the traditional method than the sort of cutting edge science method. Hmm. Interesting. I think the biggest question on the minds of many foreigners in Beijing, it definitely is in my house, is should we travel back home this summer? Uh, what's your advice? I'd say still no. The problem is that it's not the vac the the, the COVID nineteen situation is different wherever you go. And the fact is, like last year, last summer was our first summer with COVID nineteen, and no one really knew what was going to happen. And a lot of stuff that I never would have imagined happened would happen happened such as uh, Chinese government saying that people with valid visas are not allowed back in for the time being because of COVID restrictions. This has caused people to, you just never know, right? So the problem is if you go away, it's, a, it's, it's, just, it's just a spin of the roulette wheel. What are the chances that you're going to be able to come back in? No problems, no questions asked. Meh, pretty good. And it's not I'm not saying that, oh, you should travel. You, you shouldn't travel because I fear you will get COVID-19. It's just that some sort of regulation is likely to be put in place that will surprise you and unpleasantly surprise you. Maybe it's, they're going to say, oh, there's a flare up in this area. So now we're going to let people, you, you have to quarantine for four weeks instead of three weeks. I don't know what it is. Just... Yeah, I see, I see. I think there is two things preventing me really... Uh... I mean, more than that, but two major things that are preventing me from 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 leaving China at all. If your return flight is canceled, then good luck getting another onto another flight because those flight rules are still, you know, still quite um, severe. And the second is that three week quarantine. I just don't want to do it. Like I just, yeah. it's just such a non-starter for me. Yeah, I, I, I said to myself, if, if I really needed to go home, and I'm from the Boston area, I could go home and deal with quarantine on both ends. But I mean, I that's that's a whole summer's worth of travel quarantine. I don't, you know, I'm just too, 
not into that. Doesn't sound fun. No, I'm going to Guilin. I think that sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's an enormous yeah. amount of travel opportunities in China, and people. I, I, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical about travel sometimes because I sometimes it's it seems crowded on the trains and sure. waiting a lot of lines. Sometimes there's a lot of you know. Uh, if you're a foreigner unfamiliar with the place, you could kind of get into situations where you where you maybe are getting a little bit taken advantage of, higher prices, taken to crappy tourist destination areas instead of like really nice areas or whatever, not where where the locals go. And sure. so, but there's the interesting interesting enough. There's a lot of the very outwardly focused tour agencies have now flipped the script and off are starting to offer domestic tours. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of them is called um, Bespoke. Bespoke is a travel agency that, uh, as far as I know, they 90% of their business or 99% of the business was taking VIP customers from overseas into China on tours. Since that stopped, they've now flipped the script and again, they're offering it to locals. So you could get this premium VIP style tour geared towards foreign visitors on a domestic destination. So I think that's they're kind of excellent. That sounds incredible. And you can read more about them in the pages of the Beijinger. Probably, yeah, somewhere. I'm sure we've written about <laughs> them have. somewhere, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Mike Wester is the founder and CEO of True Run Media. Thank you for coming, Mike. Sure, no problem. I also talked with Peter Catterall this week. He wrote something in China a while back that, that caught my eye. So I called him up and we talked about it. Peter Catterall is a writer based in Lanzhou, China. He recently wrote a piece in China called What Are China's Favorite Sports? And he is here to talk to me about it. Peter, thank you for joining me. Hey, hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks. So first of all, um, why did you want to write this piece? Well, um, I've been writing some different articles for China for a while, and I think much like yourself, one of the things that that uh, Sub China tries to do is to, uh, you know, not always focus on the really heavy um, issues and to try and fill in the gaps for uh, to kind of talk about some of the things that a foreign audience maybe doesn't always understand about life in China itself. And so uh, we were just talking about some of these issues, brainstorming, and we thought that it could be really interesting to just kind of go over uh, China's own domestic world of sports because. Uh, you know, sports is a, a really interesting uh, way to understand a country and a culture. And it's also, um, of course, with the Beijing Olympics coming up next year, uh, sports is often a way for, um, it's often a vehicle for international exchange. And so we just thought that it would be interesting if we could kind of investigate it and, and discuss uh, some of the most popular sports uh, in China today. Okay, so let's 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 break things down sport by sport, and let's start off with the most popular sport in the world, which is soccer. So, what is the state of soccer in China right now? Actually, uh, a lot of Chinese will tell you that uh, that China is the homeland of of what we now call soccer. Uh, there's a, a really ancient traditional uh, sport in Chinese history called tzu uh, ju, uh, or kick the ball. And so, although it has this kind of um, Kind of mystical history in China, um, it hasn't really been prominent in modern times. So throughout much of the most recent centuries, when soccer became a big international phenomenon, um, China has been largely absent from that scene. Um, however, in the last couple of decades, there's been uh, a huge rise in the popularity uh, within China itself. 
Um, the, the Chinese Domestic League, the Chinese Super League, or CSL, uh, was established in 2004. Uh, they currently have 16 teams, and we've seen a steady rise in their annual attendance uh, within the country. Um, and so uh, there's also a huge push uh, for the Chinese national team to uh, achieve more success in international competitions like the World Cup. Uh, so far, they've only um, actually qualified for a single uh, World Cup, um, but there are uh, there's a huge campaign going on right now to try and um, win a World Cup in the next several decades. Uh, this is the men's team, of course, and it's kind of part of the uh, there's a drive uh, by the government to try and transform China into a leading uh, sports nation or a uh, as they call it, a, uh, one of the uh, global centers for athletic talent. And uh, football is certainly a really important uh, sport for them to achieve success because, as you say, it is the world's most popular sport. Uh, have you ever been to a, a domestic soccer game here? I've not here, no. Um, I think because I haven't been here so long and I'm currently um, they're not having in-person in attendance, uh, or at least in any sort of significant numbers, but I certainly hope to. I've heard that they can get, uh, they're pretty exciting, <laughs> uh, pretty well attended. All right, so let's let's move on to basketball. So the CBA, for people who aren't in China, is pretty popular. Uh, last year when Jeremy Lin was playing for the Beijing Ducks, I tried to buy tickets and couldn't. It was it was. Totally sold out, and that's just one indication of how ba uh, popular basketball is here. So, what did you find? So, from my personal experience, you know, just talking to people, I, I think, in my opinion, basketball is the most popular sport. Um, there's just you have a ton of really fanatic supporters of, of teams, not only for the the CBA, the Chinese Basketball Association, but also the NBA. And anybody who's who's been to China will you just have to take a glance around in a crowd, and it won't take long to find a LeBron James jersey or a Houston Rockets a hat or something. So also the NBA is, is incredibly popular here. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, if you were to just take a poll for uh, which sports uh, the average Chinese person would, would watch, I think it would, it would have to be basketball. So they currently have a, a deal, by the way, the, um, a huge deal uh, between the NBA and Tencent. So Tencent currently has the exclusive rights uh, for broadcasting the NBA um, through the 2024-25 season. And as you alluded to, that was thrown into question briefly uh, due to a controversy a while back. But um, it seems to have survived. And uh, I, I don't think the popularity of the NBA in China is going anywhere. What about the CBA? Like, how 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 popular is that? Do people actually go to them um, all over the, the, the country? Or is it just a Beijing thing? Uh, I mean, again, not right now during the pandemic, but before, um, yes. Before, yes, they're quite well attended. Um, and in terms of the level of investment it's, it, and, and the attendance and support, uh, I think it, it's you can argue that the CBA is, is becoming uh, one, of the, one of the most prominent or at least up and coming or promising uh, foreign um, basketball leagues uh, apart from the NBA. Um, they've also started to attract a lot of more, a lot more international talents in terms of coaching and players, which can help to, you know, improve the, the local talent, but also attract some interest and, um, and to acquire legitimacy as well. So I think the trajectory in the future for basketball and, and the CBA is certainly um, going to rise. I'm really looking forward to that opening up again for uh, spectators. So you have volleyball on your list. Why do you have volleyball on your list? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, 
Well, if, if you look at, um, at the first two that we just talked about, we, we talked about football and we talked about basketball. Although they're wildly popular in China, um, the national team has not had much success in international competitions, the, the, the um, Chinese men's basketball and Chinese men's um, soccer teams. However, volleyball uh, is the sport which has one of the most um, popular and well-respected uh, athletes in, in China, uh, Lang Ping, who was a female a player who uh, took the Chinese national team to victory in the 1984 Olympics um, and has subsequently went on to win a, a lot of um, international competitions uh, and has also now coached for the Chinese national team. Uh, just last year, there was a movie, uh, the English name was Leap, uh, which was um, had a star cast, and it was all about her and her story and her leading the Chinese national team to victory in the international competitions. So I think it's it's a combination um, of um, just the popularity of the sport in everyday life, but also uh, the, the success of the national team on the international stage, which makes it a really closely followed sport. Uh, even though I think so many foreigners, we we don't tend to think of volleyball as one of the leading sports, but in China, it's, it's very, um, it, it's very highly regarded. I think the final sport on your big list is the one sport I, that I think a lot of people would identify with China, uh, ping pong or table tennis. How did ping pong become so popular in China? It's a really interesting story. Um, so ping pong or table tennis was actually originally a very high class game played by uh, English aristocrats. And it was first introduced in Shanghai, uh, kind of in the heyday of the international you know, treaty, uh, treaty period. Uh, and funnily enough, it became adopted by the early Chinese Communist Party. And of course, then um, you know, the revolution happened and China was largely cut off from the wider world. But uh, ping pong became incredibly popular. And uh, they had early success in the highest levels of uh, international competitions in the sport. And today, I mean, you just have to take a glance at the recent victories in, in um, Olympics and, and the international championships, and it is still dominated by, uh, by Chinese uh, athletes. And so I think this is why they call it the, the national ball game or guoqiu. They actually refer it to uh, refer to it as kind of the national pastime in the same way that Americans uh, often refer to baseball as uh, the national sport. So there, it has a really deep link with uh, the history um, and uh, the culture of, of modern day China. And, you know, walking around any city or any town, you will see some public courts and people using those courts. It's it's it just seems to be a part of the national fabric, as, as, as you said. Right. And I, I can speak from experience that the just average talent level is so high. It's for someone who is, I don't know if you've ever tried to go up against uh, an average Chinese person, but just they grow up with it and they, they just have this natural talent um, for it, which uh, we don't necessarily have outside. Uh, outside of China. <laughs> okay. So, so running through your honorable mentions, you, you have badminton running and Esports. Now, have you had any pushback on this list? Because I definitely have one beef with it, which is that esports is not a sport. <laughs> if you were to ask me, I would agree with you. But the reason I put it um, at the bottom of the honorable mentions list is because uh, it is very much regarded as a sport here. Um, 
I, I've asked many people in my day-to-day -day life and uh, they see it as a legitimate sport. And um, not only that, it, it's China is quickly emerging as the center of uh, online sports, online gaming um, competitions, and actually very formal and professionalized leagues with huge levels of investment. So although I also have reservations about that, um, I think it's important to consider uh, what Chinese people see as, you know, the most popular sports, you know, however that may be defined. Now, one sport that you did not mention was tennis. There have been some fantastic female tennis players coming out uh, over the last 10 years from China. Uh, was that something that you looked at at all? I looked into it. And of course, there has been a lot of, um, there has have been quite a few very talented international athletes out of China. But I don't think it has the same kind of popular um, support across the wider Chinese nation. Um, you know, it requires very uh, expensive facilities, which aren't always available. And apart from that, I just don't think the competitions are followed very closely by the average citizen here. So I think that's why, uh, although they've had some very um, successful athletes on the international stage, that, that's why I decided not to include it. Uh, Peter, what is the best way for people to find your work? Uh, probably give me a follow on Twitter. It's at PF Catterall. That's probably the best way. Peter Catterall is a writer based in Lanzhou, China. He joined me over Zoom. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Hag. It was a fun. Thank you, Peter Catterall. Thank you to Mike Wester. Next week, I'm hoping to bring you interviews with the people who run some of the most successful restaurants in Beijing. I wanted to see how they coped with lockdown last year and, and take a look at how they're thriving now. Are there any lessons there for people in the West? Maybe. Find out next week.